0: Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in a windy Stoneville, Mississippi, Tom.
1: Yeah, that's like several days in a row of nothing but wind. I feel like I'm on high plains in Texas again.
0: It is hammering, like dust blowing across the turn or across the road from a turn row when I was driving back after lunch.
1: The only thing that's decent is when I close my eyes, I don't smell a feed yard. Those folks that haven't visited the High Plains, been in the Lubbock or Amarillo area, have no idea what we're talking about. But that happens. There's a lot of cows
0: up there. Smells like poo. That's what it smells like.
1: And it's intermittent smell. Like one minute it'll smell, and then, hey, where'd the smell go? And then it'll hit you again about 20 minutes later. There it is again.
0: Chicken houses do the same thing. Exactly. Why don't you introduce your special guest, and we'll cease talking about poo.
1: Okay, we have on the phone from Louisiana today, Boyd Padgett. And Trey Price. Afternoon, guys.
2: Afternoon. Good afternoon.
0: All right. We caught both of them, so we're we're good to okay, go, Tom. <laughs> so you got them on the computer, at least. <laughs> yeah. You saw that they have a peak. Right. So, okay. so we got Boyd and Trey on a three-way call through Tom's iPhone.
1: First time we've ever done the three-way yeah. call, so this yeah. is, you know. Breaking new ground. Nothing like setting things up to fail to start with on a
0: Tuesday. In the spirit of the three of you, my question, Tom, is among the three of you, you could include any other plant pathologists you would like to include. Who wins a King of the Ring-style bout among the Southern plant pathologists? Do I need to explain King of the Ring-style <laughs> bout?
2: Bob Kim Kimwright. Kim <laughs> I got my money on Kim Wright. I'll
0: go with that. My assessment is Trey's wiry.
1: I, I actually was going to say Trey would probably win. It's either Trey or somebody like Foskey or Spurlock. It's somebody you don't think has the chance to win
0: it. So I'm thinking you probably toss Boyd. I'm snapping my fingers as if everybody can hear that. Like pretty quick after the bell rings. I think it comes down to you and Trey. <laughs> the funny thing well, is.
2: Well, I, w- I wouldn't. I wouldn't fight fair. I can tell you that.
0: (laughs) See, you got to have a Franklin Parish fudge factor in there, Tom. Franklin Parish is always a wild card. Yeah. I'm too old. I got
3: a bad back, so.
0: You're getting tossed right after the bell, (laughs) Boyd. No, he would interfere on my behalf,
3: and then I'd win it. He hit somebody with a steel chair,
2: maybe.
0: That's for all of our wrestling fans that are
1: listening. Hilarious. That'll keep them interested until the next option of that. You'll have the the texts will start coming as soon as this thing drops. Hank Jones will chime in, I'm sure. King of the ring. (laughs) Okay, so we set this up this afternoon to focus really on head scab of wheat or fusarium, head blight, FHB, whatever you want to call it. It's probably called numerous different things in our region. And I wanted to invite Trey and Boyd on because they definitely deal with the major U.S. scab initiative-based projects on that. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what you all do in Louisiana to look at variety trials, look at fungicides, and how that's really managed from that standpoint.
3: Trey and I have some variety by fungicide tests in which we're looking at uh, three levels of Resistance or susceptibility. So we have a susceptible, moderately susceptible, and moderately resistant. There's, no, there's nothing out there that's just totally resistant. And then we have various fungicide treatments overlaid on that. And then we have a uniform fungicide test. These are inoculated with the organism on some uh, corn where the Fusarium is, is grown on, and then it's distributed in the in the plots. And, I'll defer to Trey on the same Head Scab Nursery.
2: We collaborate extensively with our outgoing wheat breeder, Steve Harrison. He's, re, he's retiring from wheat after this season. He's going to continue on and, and uh, do oats for a few more years or until they run him off. Anyway, we collaborate extensively with him. With, uh, it's an it's inoculated scab nursery here at the Macon Ridge Station. We also have locations in Baton Rouge and Alexandria. Um, Boyd does the one in Alexandria, and Steve does the one in, uh, in Baton Rouge. Uh, but all of the material or potential material that's going to be grown in the southeastern United States is included in that nursery. So um, that would be choice number one for somebody that wanted to grow wheat is they we want to plant a moderately resistant variety. We help Steve with all of his variety development trials here at Macon Ridge too
3: something too we put on just our, our regular official variety trials it may have um, anywhere from probably 50 to maybe up to 70 varieties this year we got 63 different varieties that we're looking at and at those three locations that Trey mentioned in baton rouge dean lee and up at, at the macon ridge near windsor we actually have expanded the size of that test so we have uh six plots of each variety and three plots or three reps are, are sprayed with a fungicide as close to anthesis as we can or flowering as we can. And that gives, it gives our stakeholders in the state as well as other states the opportunity to look at, okay, this variety did respond to a a fungicide spray specifically for scab and how well or are, how well it didn't respond. So it's kind of something we—I guess, Trey—we've been doing that for maybe three or four years
2: now. I think third or fourth season. Yes. We also have a location in Saint Joseph where we do that. Oh, cool.
1: I would say, and and y'all would probably back me up on this statement, or at least you know add some information to it. Probably in the last decade, scab has become probably the number one disease in our wheat production system just because it ends up raining every time wheat starts to flower, and that usually exacerbates that particular organism infection and then the resulting losses in test weight and the, uh, the associated toxin that's produced from that particular organism.
3: Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100%. Um, I mean, if you go through the literature, scab is, in some reviews is characterized as being the worst, disease of wheat worldwide, so it's, it can, yeah, it can bite you pretty good in some years.
2: Yeah, my experience here in in the state, it's over the past seven seasons, or seven or eight seasons, I, I'd say 75% of the time that scab's going to be an issue. We basically moved to, okay, if you're going to grow wheat, you need to budget a scab fungicide application. Uh, it's just been that big of an issue.
1: What about specific fungicide products? Because I know that's something that we as plant pathologists talk about and we probably do not do near near as good a job talking about that at county meetings sometimes as what we should. But there's one class of fungicides you should stay away from when you're talking about from managing scab.
3: Fungicides in the strobe family can, can actually increase the incidence of scab. Most of what we see, we got some triazole products and some trizone HDI products that are applied for, for scab? Yeah, one
2: of the easiest places to go and find that information is the uh, the Crop Protection Network website, the cropprotectionnetwork.org, and you just look for all the wheat fungicide efficacy table. And there are a handful of uh, fungicides that are recommended for application to wheat for scab management. Uh, but you have to keep in mind that the best, control or management you're going to get is 50% and ideally that's only going to happen if you go out by ground with at least 15 gallons of water and most people aren't willing to do that And I always tell farmers and consultants you can't expect a miracle out of an airplane going at 140 miles an hour putting out 5 gallons per acre Uh, particularly with with this disease. Yeah coverage is very important on that head
0: If y'all would back up for a second and describe this disease for someone like me who has never gone and looked for it. So, if I'm scouting a field, what symptoms am I looking for? What we, we Tom, you touched on the weather, but maybe be a little bit more specific on the weather and then the symptoms that I would see in the field.
2: Gaps yeah, caused by a fungus called Fusarium graminearum. Uh, there are other species involved, but that's the dominant species. And by the time you notice symptoms, it's probably too late. It'll be after you're, after the, the wheat's headed out, and you'll notice bleached heads. You look a little closer. You'll have shriveled kernels, pinkish to salmon-colored sporulation. It's going to be kind of hard this year in the varieties that headed out really early and got freeze damage. It's going to be hard to, to separate the freeze damage from the uh, from the scab damage. The other thing is, is at harvest, uh, the, the fungus produces a toxin that's, that's harmful to, when, when consumed to livestock, and that that's one of the biggest problems we've actually had. They'll test grain loads for for toxin levels, and you're, you know you can actually get your I an mean,
3: entire truckload rejected.
0: So if I can't see it, what are we triggering a control tactic off of?
3: Based on what Trey said, and and Tom too. A decade ago, maybe 15 years ago, this was not an issue, and it, it has grown to be one. So a couple of things growers need to consider. First off, certainly, they need to have a, a decent crop in the field, and I think Trey is too, and probably Tom. We're going out and we're getting calls about trees damage, things such as that. So you determine that, okay, this crop's worth taking care of. Secondly, if, if it's grown behind corn— you're at greater risk because this fungus also infects corn. So you're looking at that. You're looking at the variety uh, resistance package. And there's actually a, a risk management tool out there that growers can go to. And it's through this project, the uh, United States Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative. It's a USDA project, multi-state, actually other countries. So if it's warm and it's wet during flowering, that's definitely. And as, as Trey mentioned, you have to be proactive. You can't, you can't quantify. You just have to say, I got a good wheat crop, and I'm going to treat it anthesis because it's favorable for disease development, infection, and uh, epidemic development.
0: Okay, so allow me to summarize that. So if we have a wheat crop behind a corn crop, We have good wheat crop at the time that it starts to grow rapidly after our fertilizer application in February, say. And then we end up with some warm and wet conditions. If you're planning on growing it for grain. Yeah, at flowering, then we need to go ahead and trigger that application.
2: Yeah, even, even if you're not necessarily following corn. We, we grow so much corn in the area that fungus is pretty much ubiquitous now. It, it, it goes to corn as well. So well, and that's, yeah, that's something else to consider.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say, is that I think that organism now is pretty endemic, and I think it subsists on any of the residue that's out there. And I think we have had so much corn production, like Boyd pointed out, the last 15 years. And our corn acres have stayed fairly static for the most part. And I think that that organism now is just... In the, air, in the air pattern and can more easily infect. And that's the important thing to note. Infection occurs at an extremely specific point in time that typically tends to be right around flowering. So that fungicide has to be triggered at the right time to reduce the amount of infection that occurs and thereby reduce the overall losses associated with that. As Trey and Boyd both pointed out, you're never going to have 100% efficacy or control with that fungicide which is a really hard thing to talk about because the expectation is is that that's just going to be the blank coverage at that point you're not going to have any losses if you do make that application but i think farmers need to be mindful that if you don't you can have extremely substantial losses that can then be uh Exacerbated if you have that infection and the resulting toxin production, as Boyd pointed out, you'll have loads turned away at the at the elevator.
3: You can't blend your grain; it's illegal to do that. So, once you get rejected, you're done. Yep, yeah, it's a difficult disease to manage for sure. The best thing
2: you can do—I can't emphasize this enough—is plant a moderately resistant variety and go ahead and and just be prepared to put a. a a good application of a good fungicide, out.
3: I agree 100%. I teach a disease management class once a year, and I tell the students that the foundation of any, irregardless of crop, the foundation for any uh, disease management program in row crops is going to be genetic resistance. And it it builds from there.
0: What other diseases do wheat growers and consultants checking wheat need to be mindful of this time of year
2: this year there's there's, there's hardly anything to be worried about I, I haven't been able to find any rust in the northern part of the state there's a little bit of leaf rust in the southern part of the state you know we've got issues with septoria some years i will probably see some bacterial issues but there's nothing you can do about those other than just kind of watch them manifest themselves
3: uh, disease pressures really light this year I've occasionally seen a tan spot, but it's not consistent
2: from year to year. Yeah, and those diseases are fairly easily managed with with fungicides that are relatively cheaper than the the scab fungicides. Any of the rust diseases, you can you can manage those with generic propiconazole or generic tebuconazole or something like that, and works great.
1: The only thing I'd point out there is that be mindful that the bacterial leaf streak issue that we seem to have had more of the last few years can look a lot like stripe rust. So if it's a line or a row-type lesion on a leaf, if it's not sporulating, don't jump to conclusions that you have stripe rust. Because as of now, there's been no stripe rust identified in, in our general region that I'm aware of.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we, we can't
3: find striped rust anywhere. As Trey mentioned, it's, it's been a very light disease year, which is good. We're trying to help growers, uh, save some money. So you don't always, don't always have to spray for these rust diseases, particularly if you got a good genetic resistance that's still stable and the pathogen hasn't overcome the the, the resistance in the plant. It's cheap and it's very effective. I think
2: the breeders are doing a really good job of staying ahead of the rust diseases.
1: I would agree with that. But the effort there, we send in all those rust samples to the cereal Disease Laboratory in St. Paul, if I'm not mistaken. They always make that request mm-hmm. for those. So right. plant pathologists throughout the country contribute leaf samples that have rust on them to that effort, and those either go with stripe rust to uh, Xiamen Chen in Washington or to the Serial Disease Laboratory in St. Paul with leaf rust, and then even um, if we end up with uh, stem rust, those samples will go there too. And then those are all, any of that information that comes from that basically goes to breeders and uh, and helps produce more resistant or more tolerant varieties for Growers that want to choose to plant wheat,
3: absolutely. I would just encourage, uh, you know, our stakeholders, producers, consultants, to particularly with this this freeze that occurred on March twentieth, to assess their crop before they start. You know, pouring a bunch of money into it. As we talked at the very beginning of this program, Jason had asked, you know, what triggers? Well, you got to have a crop in the field and then you got to have those conditions that favor disease development. Just kind of step back and assess where your crop is relative to the, the freeze that we had last week.
0: The guys I've talked to, naturally they're not calling me about head scab, but when I have quizzed them on the you know status of the wheat crop that they're looking at, most of it that they're reporting to me at least is a little bit younger, and so maybe we missed some of the – the really, really devastating effects of that freeze that was however many days ago now last week. I know there's some, Tom, around that that had to have been jointing just because it's driving down the road. it, It looks like it's to that point, you know, without getting out of the truck and walking out in it. You would just think that as green and lush and tall as it is, you would think that it's probably putting on a joint by now, in which case that freeze was probably at the exact wrong time.
2: It depends on how cold it got and what stage it was when it got cold. I I have been walking plots this morning with Doctor Harrison. I'm currently waiting the OVT for freeze damage and I think back on the twentieth, if you were if you were not at late boot, if you were earlier than that, I think for the most part in this area you're gonna be okay. There's not gonna be major losses, but if you, if you were headed out at that time, you know, or pollinating, it you're not gonna have much wheat out there. I think the worst loss in our area will probably be about 25% on the earliest varieties. Some of these earlier entries that aren't commercial varieties, it can be much more than that. But I think for the most part, we, the growers in the northeast part of Louisiana kind of, I think they probably dodged the bullet on it.
3: I'd agree with that too. I talked to one of our county agents up in northeast Louisiana, and she had mentioned that the soil temperature is at four inches during that time of the freeze. We're around 46 degrees So there's radiant heat coming off the ground That kind of helps a little bit buffer Those ambient temperatures that we get From four feet off the ground Or where wherever they're taking those readings It might differ six inches to a foot off the ground So time will tell
1: Well, and get a little breeze And that changes all of that any other plugs from you guys about wheat or scab or anything? I meant to look up what that actual website is, but I think if if interested parties want to just go to Google and just search for like PSU because I think that actual website is through Penn State, if I'm not mistaken. PSU scab weather model, and they'll probably land on that webpage.
2: At the Macon Ridge station on April 20th, we're gonna we're gonna have a. Uh... Wheat and field day. We have one every year. It's usually right around that that same time. All are welcome to attend.
1: Well, let's let's thank our guests. Boyd, Trey, really appreciate the time that you took to spend with us this afternoon talking about that. I think that's it's timely information. Uh, so we really
0: appreciate it.
2: We appreciate y'all. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank yeah. a lot. Always, always a pleasure.